From the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard in Cambridge, Massachusetts, it's the Broad Ignite podcast. We feature researchers supported by this program, which connects rising philanthropists with emerging scientific talent. Learn more at giving.broadinstitute.org slash broadignite. Broadignite, seeding the next generation of visionaries. I'm Jen Chen, and I'll be your host for this episode. Joining me today are two wonderful scientists that are supported by Brodignite. Um, I've got Anna Greca, who is a physician scientist at Brigham Health, and Mariella Philbin, who's a physician scientist over at Dana-Farber. You guys, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so, for having us. We brought you here today because we thought it would be really interesting for people to hear the perspective of physician scientists. You guys are sort of a special group of people because you're both in the clinic and you're also in the lab. So if we can just uh, get you guys to briefly introduce yourselves. Um, Mariella, why don't you go first? Yeah, thank you. I'm excited to be here today. So I'm a pediatric oncologist uh, working mostly at Dana-Farber, but also here at the Broad. And my special interests are um, brain tumors in children, which really is or are one of the last frontiers in pediatric oncology because over the last few decades, we haven't made much progress. So my passion and my, my goals are really to change that and in the next few years, find new treatments for these terrible diseases. Anna? I am a physician scientist, as you mentioned, at uh, Brigham Health, and it's uh, really uh, great to be here today. Um, I run a research team which uh, basically spans the Brigham and Broad. Um, so there are um, two lab locations and uh, scientists from my group going back and forth between the hospital and the Broad Institute. And uh, our goal really is to jumpstart a field that has been largely neglected over the last few decades, and that's uh, the field of kidney therapies, therapeutics. Uh, there hasn't really been any targeted therapies for kidney diseases over the last uh, 40 or so years, and so uh, we're really uh, committed to changing that uh, and bringing new therapies to patients. Well, let's back up a little bit, because I think for a lot of people, um, they get a little bit confused when they hear the term physician scientist. Mm -hmm. So what do, you, what do you think of physician, when you say physician scientist, what do you think is the definition for that term? Uh, well, I mean, it, it for me, it started... Uh, pretty young. Um, for full disclosure, I'm the daughter of physicians as well, and so that was something that was in my life growing up. Um, there are many different things that I can point to in the past. Uh, some of it had to do with, um, it so actually happens that uh, my father is a kidney specialist as well, and you know, I was exposed to uh, kids with nephrotic syndrome, which is the very kids that I'm trying to help right now, uh, as a young teenager myself. And similarly could not accept the fact that you know all they could hope for was uh, going on dialysis and uh, from there maybe being lucky enough to get a transplant and you know being very young their transplant might fail in a few years and then looking at a second transplant mm -hmm. if that would be possible it just seemed like a terrible uh, way to live mm -hmm. uh, as young kids uh, teenagers and so that was a motivating factor to uh, realize that it wouldn't be good enough just to be a doctor but I had to also be in the lab uh, to um, discover right. therapies. Right. Some of the earlier stories that affected me, and I've spoken about this before, was um, reading uh, Martin Arrowsmith, a book that described one of the first physician scientists, someone who was um, a clinician, but who was then motivated to uh, treat infectious disease and uh, went into the lab and, and did some of that. This was uh, in the uh, 1920s in America. Um, a story that describes the beginnings of the physician scientists um, overall. Mariella, how about for you? 
Yeah, for me it was very similar to what Anna just said. Um, I entered medical school first and just thought medicine is this almighty, you know, science where we already know a lot of things. And then the further you dig in and the more questions you ask about why or how does it work, the more you learn that we actually only really know the tip of the iceberg. And that just drove my my wanting to, you know, do more about it. And yeah. especially for a certain disease, it's just dive in really, really deep see the patients, but also find out more about the disease in order to help them. Right. So when you guys are both in your training, are there like um, particular hurdles that you face as people who want to be both in the clinic and in the lab? Like, did you feel pressure to make a choice? Yeah, I, I have to say at the beginning it was very hard because I originally studied in, in Austria and the model of a physician scientist wasn't very common mm-hmm. back then. And I very often heard from the doctors that like, why would you go into the lab and work with mice if you can work with, with humans instead? Right. And on the other hand, from the researchers, I heard, well, you can't be serious about your research if you every now and then go back to the patients. So I had to fight with that a little bit. But I have to say here in Boston, I've never heard that at all. On the contrary, I think here it's very, very much supported by everybody pretty much I've been in touch with. Right. How about you, Anna? Well, I think that uh, we really live in an incredible ecosystem here, and I will say that the Broad in particular is a remarkable place for physician scientists Mm -hmm. uh, because it can enable you to do the best science and really work with the best scientists in all different fields, uh, while at the same time we're sort of in the middle of this what people call the mecca of Western medicine, I think it's fair to say, you know, we have such an incredible array of hospitals in town uh, and patients coming not only from this area, but from all over the world. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it's an incredible opportunity to really um, meld the two uh, fields in some ways and uh, a great place to practice being uh, a physician scientist. Um, I think it's wonderful that Broad Ignite is recognizing that because it is true that there is time uh, in our training uh, that is uh, something that actually interests me greatly, uh, makes us particularly vulnerable to dropping one of the two, mm-hmm. Right. Uh, where the strength comes from actually being able to meld the two and continue to draw inspiration from both and have um, each side inform the other, the science inform the medicine and the medicine inform the science. And so that vulnerable time comes really, I think, um, at the end of our uh, Uh, clinical training. So a lot of people invest initially in some training in science, and then they go back to do more clinical subspecialty training. Right. Uh, And then you may need to jump back into science in order to jumpstart a career. Right. Um, That happens to coincide with the family time and the time that most of us are moving on with our lives in other ways that adults usually move on with their lives. And so uh, dealing with those responsibilities and uh, perhaps being Uh, vulnerable to financial pressures and other pressures uh, can make it very difficult um, because it takes quite a bit of investment of time and Mm -hmm. effort. Uh, The landscape is certainly challenging in terms of funding. Mm -hmm. Um, And so actually this brings us back to Broad Ignite being kind of a seed for new ideas for physician scientists in this case, in our case, um, is a wonderful recognition of the fact that you know, we need to support um, physician scientists at that time of transition. So those moments of, you know, completing clinical training and being able to jump back into research and being able to support that and uh, making progress during that time is critical for one's career. Right. I was going to say, I, I went back and looked at the Broding Night webpage, and I noticed that the number of researchers who are actually phys- physician scientists is actually quite a high number. I can't remember off the top of my head. I think it's something like eight. Do you think that model, the model of being a physician scientist, do you think that's gaining traction outside of you know, Boston, New York, the big academic centers? Because I was fascinated by what you're saying. Like in Austria, people are very... Yeah. 
you know, they don't really, they don't really, are, they're not really familiar with this model. Yeah, it's a good question. And I think there's a lot of interest by leading institutions, like Anna was just saying. On the other hand, I heard by some funding agencies that the number of physician scientists is actually going down. Oh, really? Because, okay. sadly so, because um, people just calculate their time they need to spend in training. And for example, if you do an additional PhD in addition to your MD, mm -hmm. that's an additional five to six years, right, that you are not making a lot of money. And then it also coincides with family building and house building time. Um, so I think that would be sad, but I think we can counteract by being good role models, mm -hmm. by bringing it up, by talking about it like we're doing today. So let's dig a little bit deeper into how your work in both in both settings, how it informs and enriches like what you know, what your work is, what your body of work is as a whole, like, you know, the perspective of what you do in the clinic and seeing patients and how that informs your science and vice versa, like what you're doing in the laboratory and working with your lab teams and how that that uh, affects or influences your work in the clinic. Mariella, do you want to get started and talk a little bit about yeah, that? Yeah, so in my case, I, I see patients every Wednesday, so once a week in my clinic, mm -hmm. and I actually do see the exact same patients that I do research on also. So when I meet a patient for the first time, we talk about, of course, the clinical treatment, but then also um, research is very much interwoven into it. For example, if those patients get a biopsy or a surgery done, then part of that tissue sample will go to my laboratory and we can actually do research on that particular sample. So it really drives me to continue to do what I, what I do because, like I said before, there is just not much treatment to offer at the moment. Anna, how about you? Well, very similarly, I also see patients mm -hmm. who um, have uh, rare uh, genetically defined um, glomerular diseases, nephrotic syndromes, um, often second and third opinions uh, from people coming from all over. Um, and it is true that um, the opportunity to meet patients um, is a great inspiration, but it also can be um, a wonderful way to jumpstart a lot of the research that we do. Mm -hmm. So I can um, uh, tell the story of uh, a patient of mine who is perhaps famous as patient five in a study in the New England Journal that we published a few years ago. Yeah. So the way that this worked is that uh, my patient um, came to see me and I had seen her for a little bit of time. I was just getting to know her. Uh, we had realized that she was at the end of the road in terms of all available treatments for her nephrotic syndrome. Right. And at the time, through a collaboration with uh, Peter Mundel's lab um, uh, at the MGH, uh, we had come to the realization that a specific pathway in the kidney might be relevant to nephrotic syndrome. And there was a drug that had already been approved for another disease mm -hmm. that could be repurposed potentially right. for this disease. And so I partnered up with uh, famous patient five and I said, yeah. look, no other human being has received this drug for this disease, but right. we know it's safe because it's been used in other diseases. Yep. It is approved by the FDA. Would you like to try this? I yeah. think it could help you. I don't know if it will. Um, and, you know, the two of us partnered up and um, she received the treatment and I'm happy to say that she's six years out and she's doing remarkably well. Oh, that's great. Her disease uh, has gone in remission uh, for this long for the first time since she was um, seven years old when right. she first uh, became sick. And so that's exactly one of those stories that allows us to 
um, see the benefit of being able to be both in the clinic and then go to the lab and back. And it actually um, uh, is even further more meaningful from the perspective that, of course, now we want to understand how many such patients are out there like patient five. And so she has been collaborating with us, giving us samples all along the way for the last few years. And uh, we have launched a clinical trial to see how many more patients we can help. And uh, the collection of samples from her is actually allowing us to figure out a genomic signature that might actually allow us to predict down the road who the likely responders are so that we can give the drug to the right patient. So that's, this that's idea really of precision amazing. therapy, yeah. which is so new and so badly needed in our yeah. field. So yeah. yeah, I should also add to that that sometimes, or oftentimes, families come to us and then even sponsor our research, right, in addition to fabulous initiatives like the Brodick Night, because they're so invested in driving the disease research forward, mm-hmm. even if it doesn't help their own child, right. which it's, is so incredible, right? Yeah. Like, despite all the pain, they just want to help human beings, you know, in general. So this is fantastic. Yeah, that's even more amazing Mm -hmm. when you hear stories like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's go back to what you were saying before, what both of you were saying about how uh, the the unique pressures that physician scientists face. What would you advise a a younger person, a younger, you know, want-to-be physician scientist who's facing down these choices? Like, what kind of advice would you give them right now? Um, well, I, I do this all the time, actually, because I uh, have a, uh, I sit on the leadership council for the MD-PhD program at oh, Harvard, and right, so okay. it's actually my job to do that. Right. <laughs> and uh, so that's my disclaimer as well as my, uh, my privilege, really, um, that I have the chance to interact with uh, some of the brightest uh, young uh, aspiring physician scientists who come to Harvard. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they really come from all over the world, yeah. um, not only just the U.S., but uh, I think... The best way to encourage people to pursue a career as a physician scientist, I think, is through our own example. Mm -hmm. So I try to use my own career and what I've learned as a way to uh, convey to them the richness of uh, uh, the work that we do, um, that it's such a privilege to be able to both see patients as well as uh, not only have their information or their samples, but really have their partnership in the things that we do in the lab and go back and forth. And I argue with uh, our students that there is no greater privilege than having that opportunity. Um, I acknowledge the fact that it takes some sacrifice, even some Mm -hmm. personal sacrifice. Um, I don't think that uh, any physician scientist is in this because they are going to be, you know, uh, wealthy or because they are... um, uh, going to uh, gain a lot of um, uh, fame from this kind of work. Right. Uh, certainly not the way that uh, other uh, lines of work might uh, might uh, be for that. Uh, but at the same time, um, it is a tremendous privilege, um, and it is an, a profession that um, allows one to have a lot of flexibility about how they manage their time, uh, the opportunities to meet uh, smart people who are doing creative uh, work all around the world, um, and the opportunity to help people and really be at the at the leading edge of yeah. the field. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's a fantastic reason to be a clinician scientist yeah. uh, in our time. Yeah. And Mariella, I mean, you're just coming out of this like this long tunnel of like training and, <laughs> yeah. and fellowships and whatnot. So, what would you say to people who are like a couple years behind you or 
yeah. even like undergrads right now who are thinking about this this right. route. One of the best advices I pieces of advice I've ever gotten from my mentor, Dr. David Nathan at Dana Farber, um, who's the president emeritus, was when he said to me, "You know, Mariela, you have to really love what you're doing. You have to get up in the morning and just be excited to start your day." And when I heard it first, I thought, "Well, that sounds a little bit like a cliche," <laughs> but you know, he was right. Like the longer I do this now, like if you do something that you're just so excited about that you can't help yourself other than just be excited about it. Yeah. I think that's the right thing to do. And then you just have to keep on going. Right. But you'll have to find that. I think the decision of being a physician scientist is a very big one. It has huge implications for all your life. So only do it if you really, really w love it and you just can't help yourself, basically. Right. Well, that, and that sort of neatly answers what I was going to ask you next, which is you know, what, keeps, what gets you out of bed? Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was the, the answer to that next question. Yeah. It's just the, the prospect of the hope that we're really going to make an impact. And I truly, truly believe that with what, what the tools are we have now in our hands, I think it's just going to be possible to really push in the next five to 10 years, push into a clinical benefit for our patients. And that is just, I'm just excited to be part of this. Yeah. Uh, I think that's exactly right. And um, I've said this before, but one of my all-time heroes is Marie Curie, and to paraphrase one of the things that she said about her work, um, and she famously used her research to help patients during the war. Um, and uh, what she said, and again, it's paraphrasing, but uh, something to the effect of, uh, you have to wake up with the natural curiosity of a child discovering the world. And that's sort of the approach of the scientist, and in this case, the physician scientist. I think this applies to all people who do research and discovery in uh, many different areas, um, but I think this ability to wake up with the curiosity of what is going to happen next, and in addition to that, uh, also a sense of mission about getting there so that you can help another human being. Um, I think those are just the uh, most important motivators that we have uh, in this career, uh, and I think it's, as I said, a privilege uh, to have the opportunity to discover something new and find how it can help other human beings. Okay, well, I think this is a great place to end. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you very much for having us. It was us. a great pleasure. This has been the Brody Light Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we hope you tune in again to learn more about the amazing science and scientists at the Broad. The Brody Night Podcast is produced by Bradford Krieger at Big Night Studio. Special thanks to Scott Sassone for the Broad's communications department. And a big warm thanks to all the supporters of Broad Night. Learn more at www.giving.broadinstitute.org backslash Night. <laughs>